Welcome back here, the place that brings you a different guest each episode that gives us an insight into the industry quirks. Our guest on the podcast this week is your five-star, top-notch, enigmatic quadruple threat. He is the multi-award-winning writer of Trainspotting and Filth, a playwright, a producer, a DJ, amongst other superpowers. He is the epitome of a proud Scot and mad hips fan, as well as posting up and living in multiple enviable spots in the world. Welcome our next guest, Irvin Welsh. Irvin Welsh, how are you and where are you today? I'm great, Dan. I hope you are too. Uh, I'm in Oxfordshire, kind of. South Oxfordshire, just uh, by the, the River Thames, basically about an hour outside of London. Yeah, beautiful. I guess there's so many different facets of what you've done. Uh, this You have got that, as I say, that quadruple threat, but it's actually more than that. You've got all these different things, that these fingers in pies. Um, how did you actually start in the industry itself when, at the very beginning? I think I've always been on the, the sort of fringes of things creatively. You know, I've always been on the, 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 the fringes of, of you know of, of little bands and little projects and kind of music projects and writing projects and things that were on the fringes of everything and um, without really looking like you know anything was going to go mainstream, I got uh, I, I decided that the music wasn't really sort of happening for me and I, I switched to I switched to writing basically through a kind of convoluted kind of long convoluted sort of um, process, but. I switched to writing and I wrote train spotting basically, uh, and um, then everything started to take off. You know, I got more interest in all the you know all the other stuff that I was getting up to, but um, the books kind of became the main thrust of it, and um, they've kind of remained the main thrust really until maybe about the last five, maybe about the last five to ten years that um, film and television have kind of taken over a bit in terms of you know the the way the way my time has panned out and. Um, yeah, back into the, the DJing and the, the music as well, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I keep myself busy, basically. I think you've, you've got to do a lot of things. And, you know, some things kind of pay more than others and they're more successful at some things than others. <laughs> but just to have a bit of um, diversity, I think they all kind of, they all, they, they all do kind of flood, kind of, you know, overlap into each other. And they, they sort of, they, I think they're very helpful. Did you grow up in a creative environment? Did your parents or friends were they into music or writing or TV films? Um, not, um, not expressly. No, I mean there was no, you know, there wasn't any. Um, I knew dockers and plumbers and sort of waitresses and all that growing up, but not um, with, um, sculptors and musicians and paint and painters and artists and all that stuff. So, uh, but the thing was that but within that, there was there was a great. Um, oral storytelling tradition amongst kind of working class people in Scotland and it was a great tradition of um, music and people kind of singing at parties and sometimes playing instruments and you know so there was a sort of um, there was a very um, it was quite a rich culture for storytelling quite a lot of uh, there's a big interest in music and I you know it's like my parents were really interested in music and I was interested in music as a kid and um you know, it was like, uh, and all my pals, you know, were, were interested. We, we got, were really obsessed with music. And it was, um, you know, it was, it was, that was very much the way in to, for me, sort of culturally growing up, as it is for most working class people, because it's, you know, if you live in a small council estate kind of scheme, there's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of space to put books. So you can't really sort of, um, so there's, there's not a lot of books that kind of uh, that are around. So it tends to be more, um, and music is much more accessible, basically. So there's all you know the the radio is always playing, the record player is always on, and all that. The, my immersion into everything was uh, was basically through music. 
what kind of music were you listening to growing up? Were you listening to, uh, you know, Scottish based music or everything? Well, my mum and dad, it was all Beatles, basically. That kind of that was the thing that I sort of um, grew up in Beatles, Elvis, Frank Sinatra, kind of. So it was um, that kind of thing. They were funny because I was I was really into Bowie, but they were big fans of uh, Tony Newley um, and Stop the World. I want to go off and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of got a lot, you know, I got a lot from them, but also got a lot from kind of. Uh, I also got a lot from my peers, like by people like me and my, my mates, Colin Campbell, Dougie Webster, growing up, we were just obsessed with Bowie, basically, still are. And um, it was like, and, and then when you get into Bowie, you've basically got a gateway to everything. I mean, Bowie was an incredibly generous artist with all his sources. So, you, you know, you would, get, you, know you, you would get from Bowie, you would get into all the punk underground stuff, Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and the Velvets and all that kind of thing. That, that takes you off in the direction. You would get into... Craftwork uh, and sort of and all the electronic music and his kind of sort of lower heroes era and you go off in that direction and uh, you know you get in the American station stationery you get into soul and Luther Vandross and all that so so Bowie was a um, you know and he, he he also got you into kind of reading through his referencing of Burroughs and the, the and Ginsberg and the beat uh, poets and all that so he was incredibly generous with his references and he was almost like a Bowie was a one man art school for working class kids in, of my era did you did you get to meet uh, david bowie no i stood him up twice basically um i was supposed to meet him in new york for the transporting american premiere but i couldn't go you know uh, i just thought i can't meet bowie you know and then yeah and then another time before he, he his people phoned me up and asked me if i wanted to go to meet him in glasgow at the ubiquitous chip restaurant and the glass spider tour for food, for a meal and all that, but I just couldn't go. You know, I just thought to myself, no, nah, Bowie's, I want Bowie to be a god to me. I don't want him to be a real person, basically. And I should have went in a lot of ways because um, I've become pals with Iggy Pop, and he says, and he always said to me, you know, that um, I really got on well with Bowie and he was a great guy and all that. But I think sometimes you just have to have somebody who's this iconic figure, you know. I was concerned that I would turn into like a, you know, a 14 year old sort of. Um, train spotter for want of a better term and just <laughs> talk about it, go on and so not give him any dignity just be a complete you know, little fan boy you know, you know sort of uh, and I was worried that I'd just make a fucking arse of myself basically you know so I, I, I passed on kind of meeting him and uh, it wasn't sort of arrogance at all on my part it was just it was, I was probably overawed and I know he was um, a, 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 you know apparently just a very nice guy um, and uh, but um, it's just it's one of you know it's it's one of those things that I feel more comfortable in him having this kind of godlike status in my eyes. Definitely, I think I had the same with uh, with Morrissey. I'd heard so many horrible stories about you know him coming off stage and and all that stuff. And I when I first went to see him, I was I was kind of nervous about you know how it was actually going to work out whether he was going to live up to uh, I guess the expectation that I had in, in my head but uh, he was amazing and he uh, wore this satin shirt that was absolutely drenched in and then he just chucked it at someone's face right at the front of the crowd and I was like yes that was the kind of Morrissey that I wanted to see yeah I mean it'd be great to have that one back actually <laughs> <laughs> with your with your writing you know, you we're just talking about iconic figures that, that you have listened to growing up but I mean, in terms of the writing, who inspires you and where do you find your inspiration for the writing? I think that, you know, the 
for me, again, it was through music. It was uh, the the balladeers, basically. You know, people who tell who tell stories. People like Lou Reed, Nick Cave, Shane McGowan. You know, guys that are proper storytellers, but do it through music. So your your inspiration for even writing film and TV was was still to do with the the music. I did the usual stuff. I got into you know American literature, Burroughs and Kerouac and Richard Brattigan, all these the European sort of uh, stuff to kind of you know Jeanette and Sartre and all that stuff and Russian stuff, um, you know Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and back into English literature, kind of even more. And then, this, you know, the, the, the Scottish stuff that was on my doorstep that I didn't know anything about, Alistair Gray, James Kelman, all the Glasgow writers, Janice Galloway. Do you have, like, a favourite place? Uh, obviously, you've, you've kind of moved around in these different areas as well. Do you have, like, a favourite place in the world that, that inspires you to write? Because I feel like every writer has a, has a certain spot. Um, I can pretty much do it anywhere. I mean, I think probably, probably Leith Walk. I can take a, a stroll down Leith Walk and get, get inspired because... You see all kinds of people there. You know, you see you see people going to work like kind of school teachers and sort of plumbers and joiners, and uh, you see students going to their classes and all that. And you see like kind of junkies, kind of sort of hanging into hanging in the uh, in the shop doorways and sort of in loud kind of sort of JKs or street kind of drunks, kind of sort of spilling out the pubs and shouting at each other in the street and all that. You know, so it's quite a it's a lively street and it's transitions between. You know, it's like it, it has the the kind of mundane and the extraordinary that kind of seem to go hand in hand. And all this, you know, it's like it's just you know, it's about a mile long, and you walk down that mile, and things just keep changing, and sort of uh, inspiration keeps attacking you from every street corner almost. Yeah, are you are you a real kind of people watcher as well? Yeah, I'm more of an immersive. Uh, I'm probably am. Um, I'm probably more voyeuristic now than than immersive, but I'm still quite immersive, and I do like to I like to go out and I like to get my my hands dirty and get involved in life, you know, basically. And now it's like I don't really do it consciously as somebody who wants to write about it, you know. I don't. I'm not sitting there with like a a moleskin book in my my pocket, <laughs> like taking notes on what everybody's saying and what happens and all that. I just tend to to get on with life and let it seep into me and see what comes out at a later a later time. Yeah. Is is routine quite important to you? Do you have a set time that you sit down to to kind of write things? I'm better in the mornings. I'm better at doing everything in the mornings. Uh, I try to I kind of try and get up early and knock out. You know, I think it's, if you get can get up at six o'clock every morning and you can knock out two hours before you before you have some breakfast and, um, and maybe do some exercise or go for a run or something like that, you can come back and, uh, you know, it's only it's only sort of uh, 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, then you can do another couple of hours. I mean, that's almost like, that, that's a good solid day's work, basically. And then you've got the option, you can print off what you've done and you can think, I'm going to do some more, I'm going to take this out to a cafe in the afternoon, just sit around some cafes and think about what I've done. And that's a solid day's writing, you know, and you're, and it's still only three o'clock by the time you finish. Or you can just say, well, I'm going to take some time off now. You can just go for a, you can do something, you can go to a, a, a pub or you can go to an art gallery or you can go to a, a cinema and see some great film. And so it's a fabulous, it's a fabulous life being a writer. I think it's brilliant. It's one of the, the best, it's one of the best, it's the best thing I could have ever hoped for myself, you know, to have yeah. that kind of life. But, 
talking about the, that writing process, but also the work that's happened, I guess, recently with everything slowing down. It's been a, it's been a weird fucking 12 months for everyone, but has it slowed down for you or have you carried on writing and have you got more fuel to, to, to keep on uh, doing more projects yeah, and what yeah, have you got going? It- I've had a lot. I've had so many. You know, it's, it's been a. You know, this is a, a horrible thing to say. You know, in some ways, I feel guilty about saying it because it's been such a struggle for a lot of people. And I know that you know, mentally, it's been a struggle for people, and money-wise, it's been a struggle for people. And, and you know, it has been a terrible time. But for me, it's been great. It's been an absolute godsend because I've had so many projects that, uh, and so many writing projects that I had stacking up, and. It's just given me a chance to kind of get, you know, just to get through them without distractions. So I've just been sitting kind of doing my my, my work, basically, and I've moved, you know, I've, I've been able to, I've been fortunate that I've been able to be a bit more mobile than most people. And, uh, yeah, I've got my I've got my book writing projects. I've got uh, a load of books that are just kind of, I didn't see any point in bringing a book out during the pandemic when you can't promote it and all that. So I'm going to um, wait till this sort of gets settles down a bit then then I can bring a book out but we've done you know obviously we did creation stories we just sh- shot that before the pandemic and we've been able to bring that movie out we've and what's that been about, able what's that to about do, it's about Alan McGee who you know the guy who discovered Oasis basically in Primal Scream and the, the Jesus and Mary chain I mean nobody discovered them they discovered themselves basically but he was a guy who signed them up basically onto the label and Alan was just one of the, you know, he was, um, I've known him for a long, long time and he was kind of, he's always been, um, he was, he was the kind of guy who just basically had the punk rock attitude of just sticking his neck out and just backing bands that he liked and backing people that he liked and galvanizing people into doing stuff. So he set up creation records and it's basically, you know, it's like a, a highly fictionalized version of Alan's life. You know, we just kind of, we had to, you know, and we, if you're doing a book about, if you're doing a, a sorry, a movie about music, like uh, Dean Cavanagh, my writing partner, and I, we decided that we have to, we can't, you know, you can't make this boring. You have to make the characters larger in life and even larger than they really were. And you have to go, you have to go into mythology and self mythology and, and iconography and all that, and just really amp it up because that's all rock and roll is anyway, you know. So make it into a big sort of. Rock rock and roll extravaganza and obviously the sound the soundtrack is fantastic because you've got all these great bands um involved in it so so that's we were able to get that out we've got we're, we're, i think it's in the cinemas now in australia and new zealand but uh we've got a cinema release in america in august uh, so we're just selling it across the territories it's been out for a while as a streaming thing through sky cinema in the uk they're very pleased with the numbers but we're going to bring it out as a uh, a limited cinema release in the UK, so people can go to the cinema, see it on the big screen, and you know, help, you know, get a bit fucked up first, and just go in and watch it, and go and go nuts afterwards, as we intended. So, uh, so I've been able to do that, and uh, we shoot on a show called Crime, which is a six-part thriller, an existential kind of thriller, basically about a really fucked up guy who just happens to be a cop. I mean, he could be anything, but he, he, he's a is a cop who's who's trying to to hunt down these this serial sexual abuser who you know he's, he's been he's been abused himself. So it's a very it's not like a, a an ordinary cop drama. And we've been plugging away at this for a while, and finally we're shooting on uh, Monday. So that's uh, that that's terrific. 
it's a kind of human instinct to to like you know sad music sometimes and you've managed to kind of toe that line into some degree in a lot of your projects but ultimately can it to to that quite dark area do you like the shock and awe of some of the uh, projects that you do work at yeah i mean i think the, the the basic thing is i like to get you know i need to get a reaction from myself when i do stuff i mean if, if i'm just kind of i'm just sitting away typing just going through the motions saying this is quite nice this is quite pretty this is interesting this is fun i've kind of got this my my, my internal mechanism if you like my whole kind of psyche kind of cries out well so what you know, so so the fuck what? You know, how can I make this more interesting and confrontational and challenge myself, basically? You know, so I get characters that I would find quite difficult. You know, I get I like, you know, I like in fiction, I like bad characters, I like kind of I like racists, I like misogynists, I like kind of misanthropes, uh, I like kind of confused and fucked up and alcoholic, degenerate, wasted people. In fiction, you know, I mean, it's like they're hard to live with in real life. But in fiction, I think you, it's great to have all these foibles exposed, and you can see the actual. When you expose all these foibles, you can see the actual lunacy of these kind of life stances and these life choices that, that so many of us can habitually make. Basically, you can start to to deconstruct all that. You can have a bit of fun with it and play around with it. So I think that. These kind of strange vanities and foibles that people have and we all embrace are the things that really interest me because they're the, they're the seed corns of real drama for me. And I like, I like to see things that are dramatic. I don't like things that are just basically affirmative of a comfortable bourgeois life. You know, I like things that are quite challenging. And I like to challenge myself because, I, you know, I live a comfortable life now. I can't, I'm not, you know, it's like by and large, life is quite comfortable for me. So I like to... To, to draw on past selves in a way that, that when you know, when my life wasn't as, as comfortable and I was a bit more of an edgier character, I like to bring that into the mix. Do you uh, do, do you follow that in your own in your own social life as well? I, I listened to something the other day where there was someone that I think it was he was doing musicals and that's that was his career and then when he got home he he watched the 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 darkest movies he possibly could because he's like i can't be that person all the time or and that's that's just a a character i play do you like watching things that are similar to 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 the things that you're that you write about no i don't really um i'd rather watch a kind of sort of nice rom-com with my girlfriend and get all teary and watch a sort of thriller or a horror or, or a kind of a, an urban edgy thing. I mean, people always want me to be urban and edgy and do urban and edgy stuff. And, you know, I mean, it's like that, you know, I might do that, you know, and that might be the kind of stuff that I produce, but it's not the sort of stuff that I want to sort of immerse in all the time. I mean, some stuff, some of that kind of stuff is fabulous. You know, it's like, see, the thing about anything in life, it's like any genre of music. There's, there's no such thing as a bad genre of music. Everything... The very, very best of rock and roll is brilliant. The very, very best of country and western is brilliant. You know, the very best of classical is fabulous. The very best pop, commercial pop is brilliant. You know, the best techno, the best house is great. There's a lot of shit in all these things, but the very cre- the cream of all these things is fantastic. It's the same with drama and it's the same with film. And, you know, the, the best thrillers are fabulous. The best crime is fabulous. The best romance is fabulous. I mean... And the, the very best of highbrow literature is absolutely beautiful and fabulous. But, you know, but the, the routine versions you know, of all that stuff, the stuff that isn't uh, 
written with any conviction or exuberance or is pandering to some kind of market sensibility. I mean, that stuff, you know, I, I can leave the shit out of that stuff all day long. Yeah. I, one of the obviously the iconic pieces that you that you did write is 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 train spotting, and it's the I think it from from what I know and correct me if I'm wrong, it's the only one that you've that you've actually done a, a sequel to. Is that is that right? And how did that come about? That sequel and and what what was that like for you in terms of you know getting that done? Did you did you feel a greater sense of satisfaction or or how how was it? I wrote um I wrote two sequel books to it. Porno and Dead Men's Trousers, and uh, a prequel book to uh, Skag Boys. So it's kind of the, the characters have kind of stayed with me, and I've, I've been immersed in them. And we've done two films. We did um, Train Spotting and Train Spotting Two, which was loosely based on porno. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm very much immersed in that world, and I'm kind of it's it's a world that I keep kind of coming back to, and I, I just because I really I like the characters and the first characters that I wrote, so they kind of they're almost like first loves, you know. You kind of you you have a, a romantic sort of uh, attachment to them. So yeah, I mean it's they're almost like you know I mean characters are, are they become like tools for a job, you know. If you want to if you want to investigate a certain theme or you want to pursue a certain storyline, you look in your toolbox and you think, well, I already have this character who does a bit of this and a bit of that and. They'll be old enough, so they might be involved in this kind of thing. And these guys, you know, the four main guys in that, you know, the the cynical intellectual, the 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 violent psychopath, the compulsive kind of lying, manipulative womanizer, and the hapless, lovable loser. I'm basically just saying that these guys are archetypes. You know, they you know the the main four the four characters are archetypes, and they're, so they're, they're generally recognised by everybody. Yeah, so that that's the appeal for them, you know. They, you know, they, you know that they're a kind of shortcut into a sort of a bigger cultural discourse, you know, because everybody knows these guys to a greater or lesser extent. Did you think you did you think when you made that first one that it would be as big as it it was? Yeah, I mean, you don't really, you, you never really know. But anything you do, you 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 don't really expect it to be. Well, I don't expect anything that I do to be commercially successful, you know. And it's it's not really. It's not. It, it sounds a strange thing to say, but it's probably a, I've got the luxury of saying this only because they have been commercially successful, paradoxically. But it's not something that you really that you really think about. You know, I was very lucky in that the first book was incredibly successful, and it and it allowed me to be a writer who just wrote rather than had to do other things to make a living. And that was a kind of godsend. It's godsend for any writer, and it was a terrific thing for me. So probably if it hadn't been successful, I would have had to, you know, things would have been very different and I would have had to look at things in a very different way. But yeah, it's the, the, the thing about it is that uh, you never, ever know. And, you know, the certain, the certain books or, or films or stage or plays that I've done that I felt should have been more successful than they were. And there's other ones that I've done which I felt that kind of shouldn't have been as successful as they were commercially. You know, they've, you know, they've, they've, they've found an audience and maybe they, they didn't particularly deserve to. You know, so you never, ever know. You never, ever know. You can only kind of do your best from a writing point of view. And uh, you put them out there and sometimes people, you know, salute them and love them. And other times they're kind of underwhelmed by them. And, you know, and sometimes right to be underwhelmed. Sometimes I think not right to be underwhelmed. But that's, you know, but you do, you never have any perspective at all on what you've written until a long, long time after. What was your, what's the one you're most proud of? 
I think there's, there's there's a cluster of books that I'm really proud of, and there's a cluster of ones that I'm kind of a bit more meh about, you know. So, and the ones that I really particularly like are Skag Boys, uh, Dead Men's Trousers, Marabou Sort Nightmares, and Glue. That's the kind of quartet that I really kind of enjoy. And Trainspotting as well, I suppose, you know, and, and maybe filth for different reasons. The others are, I'm a bit ambivalent about some of them. I think, well, you know, kind of short stories are a different thing, so you can take them out of the equation. Out of the novels, I think that The Bedroom Secrets of Master Chefs is a kind of underrated novel, but I think almost feel when I look back on it now, I think, well, I said everything in a way that in, my other, in all my other books that I've kind of said in this novel, so maybe there wasn't any real point in it. So I don't know, you know, so you... Ecstasy did really well commercially, but I don't think it was that strong a book. You know, so it's like you have to you have your own favourites and ones that you're not quite so favoured about. One thing that uh, a friend of mine said that I didn't actually even even know as well, but uh, w- were you doing a show which I feel like could you as a writer and 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 this could could work really as a as, as a hand in hand really great combo? Did you were you supposed to do a show about Ibiza or in Ibiza? Yeah, we've done. We've had a lot of. We, we tried to get a, a show on the go with uh, Danny Ramplin, Nicky Holloway, Paul Oakenfold, and Johnny Walker. It was, you know, basically a kind of a fictionalized account of the whole the launch of Acid House from Ibiza and the spread of Acid House. And you know, it's it's one of these ones. It's proven very difficult to do, but you know, hopefully one day we, we might do something like that. I mean, all these things are very hard. I mean, dance music is a very difficult thing to do dramatically because drama is really hitting the dance floor. You know, you know, the, the drama is in, you know, it's like the drama is going into uh, a nightclub and off your tits on ecstasy and just having it, having a great time. But it's not something you can really, you can't really show dramatically. And it doesn't make any real sense to show it dramatically because it's experiential, basically, you know. So every time I see a great film about music or about, particularly about dance music, I just want to go to a nightclub. I don't want to sit and watch other people dancing and taking drugs, you know, on screen. Um, Do you think anyone got it right? There was that 24-hour party people, I guess, was the one that I just came to mind when you were talking about it. Michael Winterbottom's film was brilliant. It was a great film. It was like, but you had these incredible characters in them. You know, you had like people like Sean Ryder and Bez and all that. You've got to have, you know, you can, you've got to have, you've got to do a great film if they're involved, you know, if they're, if they're the main characters in it. Because they, 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 they all, characters based on them would just generate drama, basically. You know, that's that's the way it would, would work out. But most ones, most ones aren't really intrinsically sort of dramatic, but particularly ones that are just purely about dance music. I mean, I think the the only one that I've, I've really liked, I think, you know, that I really thought was, you know, was brilliant was Human Traffic. I don't think that's ever been really sort of surpassed. I think it's very, very difficult to do to do dance music as drama. I actually feel like that could have been one that you could have written as well, actually, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just a great piece of work. Yeah, your your music is probably described as acid house as well because you you have that you you are a DJ and 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 you you create music as well. It, would that be a fair assumption that your that your music could be described as that? Yeah, kind of sort of techno and house and all that. You know, so that's the the, the vibe that I, that I have. I mean, I, I like all kinds of music, but what I love about dance music is the sociability of it. You, you know, you you. you you know, it's a proper night out, basically. You know, you go yeah, and the you know the old, <clears throat> the old cliche: you don't go there to watch other people in dance music. You go there to be the star of the show. Basically. I think that's a great thing. You know, it's a great <laughs> thing. Everybody there, you know, starring in their own show and that and that dance floor. I think it's fabulous. Uh, it's very energising to 
to kind of to to be a part of that. And you want to, you want you know. To, to me, you know, it's like the good thing about DJing or about doing a track or a tune that the another DJ kind of drops is that you can see instantly the reaction you're getting. You don't really get that to the same extent, and you know. You can you get it a little bit with film, you know, the audience gasps at the same time or laughs at the same time, but you get that instant affirmation. You just drop a track and within a kind of a couple of you know a couple of beats, you know, whether the dance floor is going to be crammed or whether it's just the people are going to go meh. You know, you don't really get that at all with books. You know, you might see somebody on the tube sniggering away at something when they've got the book in your your hand, but you don't know which part they're they're doing or what they're you know. There's no interface whereas like with music you've got that direct communication you know with people and it's um it's a, it's a fabulous thing it's like it's such a a wonderful part of human existence what's your what's your well there's t- two prongs so what's the what's the one that you put on uh, most and what is the one that if you hear it in your uh, you know you're out at, at a rave or a club like what what's the one that you listen to and you're like that's that i've i've got to i've got to get up and dance here uh, I mean, probably I would think that if, if Donna Summer, if the Patrick Cowley remix of Donna Summer's "I Feel Love" comes, somebody drops out or drops a, you know, a version or a, a, a mashup of it or a cut up of it, I'm on that dance floor. There's nowhere else it could possibly be. <laughs> it's a great track. Were you part of that? Were you part of the kind of rave scene in the '80s and '90s? Were you were you out kind of every weekend just getting getting on it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was out too many weekends. I mean, it kind of the the thing that uh, basically the thing that saved me from being a, a com- from complete rave burnout of kind of being obsessed with it was that the was that the writing took off and uh, writers' hours and DJs' hours are completely different. You know, clubbers' hours and writers' hours are so different. You know, you're kind of you're just usually you're just getting up as a writer in the morning. By the time you're going to bed as a DJ. You know, so something has to give, and uh, for me, I took you know really to get the writing to get to do justice to the writing. I took a good, you know, I, I, I kind of I stopped going to clubs during the week, which was a huge thing, checking out sort of DJs and bands during the week, and I left it to the weekends, and uh, that's probably kind of added like ten years to my life, I think, and it was uh, you know, and, and I was able to to build the kind the writing career and. What I found when I moved to Miami, the great thing about Miami is that uh, it's all pool parties during the day, so you can kind of you can do a big writing session in the morning, then you can go and DJ at a pool party sort of during the afternoon, early evening, and then go home to bed and have a good cup, and then get up and do the same again the next again day. You know, so you're not really uh, you're not really sacrificing one for the other. Was that the was that the best place you have lived? Because you've lived in a, quite a few places now. Yeah, I mean, there. I think anywhere is anywhere is great. You know, you, you you make you make of something. You know, it's like as a writer, you live inside your head so much of the time. So when you're out, you just you kind of enjoy the stimulus of, of having a break from yourself, really having a break from all these kind of people that don't exist. Basically, they're in your head, and I've I've had a great time wherever I was. I mean, I've, you know, it's like, I mean, obviously, it's you know, there's more options in a place like Amsterdam. Than there is stuff from in Dunfermline and Fife, but Dunfermline's great as well. You know, it's like I used to I'd kind of I'd go to the Kingsgate shopping centre and chat to the young team, and they'd be sitting there drinking the bottles of cider and all that kind of stuff. And then you know, you'd uh, 
I'd walk into the the, the Glen in Dunfermline and then go and write in the the cafe in the the, the Dunfermline Glen, and then go back to my my tenement flat in Victoria Terrace and all that. So, like, you know, you can do things that anywhere has a vibe to it. You know, anywhere there's this, this stimulation. And I think that you can't you can't go somewhere thinking this is this is my place. This is the place that's going to save me or is going to make me. Make, make me kind of self-actualize and realize my life. You have to go somewhere with the, with, with the right attitude, rock up somewhere with the right attitude and enjoy the fuck out of it, basically. And it sounds like you've made the most of every single place that you've been to. Well, I mean, what, what's, the, what's the alternative? You know, I'm not going to sit and be miserable anywhere. You know, I just, I'm just not made that way. You know, wherever I am, I'm going to go out. And I'm, uh, I'm going to try and make the best out of it. I'm going to see what's, you know, even, I mean, I think anywhere that's got people in it is a great place. You know, there's so many interesting people doing so many interesting things. Yes, I mean, I would probably rather live in a, a, a huge city where there's a lot of stuff going on and uh, or have access, at least have access to a huge city where there's a lot of stuff going on. And, uh, but, I've got, you know, it's, there's interesting people everywhere doing interesting things. You just have to find them and tap into their energy. And I guess the bigger the city <laughs> brings, the uh, the bigger the uh, the shiny lights uh, of of temptation, probably. Yeah, there's more options, and it's like you know, I've, I've kind of when I moved back to London, I, I decided I was going to live a bit outside. You know, so I've moved out. I'm about an hour out now, and. Uh, that's great for me because I can, you know, I can get in and, you know, you're, it's not a wasted, you know, if I'm in and out, it's not two hours wasted like a commuter. I'm sitting there writing on the train, basically, you know, so it's a nice relaxing kind of train ride in and then a nice relaxing train ride out. And I'm just, I'm sitting right and I can, you know, I can do all my meetings, see all my, my cronies and all that, but avoid the madness of, of like, you know, somebody's playing here tonight, somebody's DJing here, there's an art opening here, there's a, a, a film premiere here, there's like a birthday party here and all that. You, know, you can kind of tap into that, but you don't, you, you're not a prisoner of it, you're not on hand for, for that temptation all the time. Sometimes you wake up, you know, be here and I think, I'm just a little bit out and it's nice, I'm just going to stay here and write all day today uh, and go for a walk in the, the Chilterns or something like that or, you know, just do something with my girlfriend or, you know, and so it's just, you know, the, 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 you know, the more options that you have, the better, I think, you know, you, the better things are going to be for you. And that's, you know, that, and that's, that's about, it's not just about place management, it's about time management as well. Well, yeah, because you, you can't do everything even though you want it. Yeah, no, you can't. I mean, everything's kind of, you know, it's like what what's the, 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 the interesting thing about, you know, if you're a, if you're writing books, if you're a novelist, you've got this incredible amount of freedom. You just get on with it, and you set your own, you work in your own pace, basically. Whereas if you if you're writing for television, it's a completely different game altogether. You know, it's it's a, it's a collaborative industry, and it's a it's a proper industry that functions on sort of. It's, it's, if you get closer to a deadline, you're just basically you have to get these scripts done. You have to get them in. You have to be on hand to change lines, or you have to rewrite scenes when we kind of change when we can't get the locations we want to get and all that. Uh, so film and TV is a completely different discipline from writing a book. And you have to get more into, you get much more into being a, a team player and you get much more into collaboration. Whereas um, with a book, you know, you're still probably, probably like, probably like novelists and artists, like painters, sculptors, uh, you know, they're probably the last of the kind of auteur 
type of professions, artistic professions. The rest are very much uh, collaborations. I think. Yeah. What uh, What do you think? What do you think this year has t- taught you about yourself? I guess good and bad. I know it's a really cheesy thing to say, but I guess there's a lot of people that have reflected on it negatively, but without looking at the positive. Is there like positives and negatives that you've taken from it? Well, I think that uh, that you know you, you see a lot of people struggling. You know, and a lot when you when your friends or close family members and you know close friends are struggling, and you see that it's. Uh, it, it does have an impact on you too. You know, you kind of think to yourself, well, what can I do? How can I help? How can I, you know, and, and then you think, well, you get to that point where you think, I can't assume responsibility for every single person that I know that's having a bad time and their problems and how you know, how much can you, how much of a helping hand can you give without it sort of um, dragging you into the same kind of spiral of slow of despair and all that. But uh, it has taught me that I'm very, you know, I always knew I was quite self-sufficient anyway, but, it has it has made me more inclined to keep an eye on people. You know, I'm, I'm I'll pick up the phone and I'll call people that haven't been in touch for a while. And I think it's because, you know, is it because they might just want a bit of peace? I mean, it's like um, one of my mates recently. I bumped into him in the supermarket. And I was quite worried about him, and he just um, he stopped answering his phone. He went off social media and everything like that. I thought, what's going on there? And I walked, uh, I bumped into him and I said, uh, I never saw him looking so happy. And I said, I said, well, what's going on? And he said, no, I've just, uh, I've just like, all this shit was getting me down. So I just completely isolated myself from it all, went off social media, stopped answering the phone, stopped answering emails, um, just gave myself a few months of that. And it just sorted my head right out. I just, you know, it's like part of the, part of the disease of all this stuff is, is the modern era, basically. That's where we're, where we feel compelled to, to do all this kind of um, social media stuff and, you know, so if you if you can jump away from that, or or, or some people need to jump away from that, I think it's, uh, it's it's very healthy for them. I think a lot of people can, you know, should feel the need to uh, jump off of it because it, it does become quite cancerous, and you become, you know, trapped in a bit of a silo. Yeah, I mean, it's like you 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 know you you don't really need to. To, to do that, you don't have to have a view and everything or argue about everything. And, you know, even though it's sometimes fun to, to, to jump in and to do that. But eventually, I think that uh, if, you're, if you're spending too much of your time just, like, fanning around on social media, you know, you kind of think that uh, you get a little dopamine hit if you make your kind of Facebook post or your Twitter tweet or, or you pick, put a picture up on Instagram. But nobody really gives that much of a fuck. You know, it's only idiots. <laughs> it's only idiots that want some sort of, you know, they, they're, you know, sort of inadequate, fucked up kind of clowns that want some sort of vengeance or want to pile on or kind of want to sort of, want some kind of medieval witch-burning type of thing going on because of what somebody said in 2012 when they were kind of 17 years old or something like that, you know. It satiates their kind of sort of, um, their sense of depowerment that they're actually maybe doing something or, you know, when the reverse is true, they're just, uh, you know, the life is ebbing by in a series of kind of, uh, rapidly decreasing sort of dopamine hits you know and i think it's you know it's important to to be aware of all that and it's you know there's probably going to be a bit of a a revolt against social media i think yeah it's quite a cheap cheap thrill isn't it yeah it's 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 just not very good you know it's, it's not very good you don't really 
see people at their best, and it's not as it's not as rewarding as real contact and being part of a real community and seeing real people. Irvin, we're coming to the uh, end of the episode now, and I think one of the big things that I guess I'd love to pick your brains on is what advice you would give to young writers and maybe even what advice would you give to yourself when you were younger, if you could? The, the very basic thing is that writing is rewriting, basically. That's all it is. It's like you don't, you don't, write, you don't write a book or, a, or a, script, a script or a screenplay. You just rewrite it. You just kind of, you write, you write a draft and you write a better draft and you write a better draft. You just build and build and build and build and build on it. It's going to look like shit the first time. Don't worry about that. It should look like shit the first time. You just keep making it better with every pass, you know. And I would say anybody who's kind of wants to write, just do your first rough draft and don't think about it. Stick it in a drawer and then just keep doing your next drafts. And when, when, when you get to about the fourth or fifth draft, um, throw all the rest of them away. But when you get to about the fourth or fifth draft, go in and look at the first draft that you did and compare them. And uh, you'll see just how far you've come on, you know. And also, you, but, but the, the other thing is just read. Read the fuck out of stuff, you know, like kind of read, read novels that you like and read novels that you don't like. You know, and, and think about why you don't like them. What is what is the writer doing that's irritating the fuck out of you that you don't want to do when you start when you write something? Read screenplays. Look at how they're structured and how they're the sort of you know rather than how to kind of um, to, rather than buy how to books. You know, just read these these books and these scripts and all that, and then you'll get a feel for it yourself. What advice would you give to yourself now, knowing what you know and, and being through what you've been through? What advice would you give to, I guess, 15-year-old Urban? Uh, don't be such a fucking irritating little prick would be <laughs> the main one, basically. But I think that, uh, you know, I, mean, I think you, I don't think you get, you, you give, see, you can't, I'm, I'm wary about kind of older people giving advice to younger people because it doesn't really work that way. I mean, it's like, in some ways, it's like you know, you look at what older people have done. They've dragged, you know, they've, they've dragged the youth out of the European community. They've poisoned all the fucking lakes and all the and the air and you know, and they've they've, bought, they've created a financial system and a and a sort of economic system that benefits the very very wealthiest and has condemned you know the rest of the world to kind of almost like subsistence sort of uh, existence. So, really, the idea that old people should be giving young people any kind of advice about anything is quite laughable, really. It should be the other way around. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, you know, if, I, if I'm ever in the, the company of young people, I'm always asking them, like, what do you think about this? You know, how, how, how should I do this? You know, so I'm basically the, the, the kind of parasite on their wisdom because I don't think we've, anybody over 50 hasn't really learned that much, I don't think. <laughs> Irvin, it's been great to talk to you today and good luck with uh, the rest of the things that you're, you're doing and the great the projects that you've got coming up. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks, Irvin.